Hello, everybody. My name is Nazarbina, and I am here today with Ryan Skinner of Forrester. Um, this is one of our pre-conference interviews of, leading up to Omnichannel X 2019, coming up in this January. So, uh, Omnichannel X is a new cross-disciplinary event and community for marketers, content specialists, commercial teams, and anyone else who wants to tackle today's content and communication challenges using multiple touchpoints. As such, we are very excited to have uh, Ryan here from Forrester, who specializes in just that. So uh, I am program director. My name is Nazar Bina. Um, I'll be conducting most of these interviews. And uh, Ryan, if you want to introduce yourself to our community. Yeah, great. Thank you, Naz. Uh, my name is Ryan Skinner. I'm a senior analyst on Forrester's research team that advises marketing leaders. Um, as people can probably hear from my voice, I'm an American, but I am uh, settled pretty much for good in Europe. I work out of London. Um, so I advise marketers on both sides of the pond, really. And mm -hmm. I've been an analyst about five years and have focused almost the entire time on content, content marketing, and content strategy, which has led to you know, the, some of the most recent research explicitly on you know, how do you start thinking about content from an omni-channel perspective. Excellent, excellent. That's a similar story to myself, actually. <laughs> North American now in Europe. Um, in content and content strategy. So um, so you'll be speaking, speaking in the event. You're one of our featured speakers. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to get, get a little bit of a feel for what you'll be kind of bringing to your talk, uh, where you'll be focusing and what kind of issues you'll be tackling. Sure. Um, one of the privileges that I have um, by being a researcher is that I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of marketing leaders, mm. a lot of digital leaders, agencies, technology vendors about... Um, what they're seeing, what the challenges are in the market, who's doing what, um, and oftentimes kind of the real, well, truth about uh, a lot of organizations and how they're set up and the challenges that they have and all the places where they have to copy and paste stuff and <laughs> how things actually work. Which the is dirty never, secrets. Right, right. It's never quite as pretty as, as, as they'd like it to be. Um, and they're always, you know, when, when they have the opportunity to really tell about how it is there they don't hesitate to to be you know express frustration mm -hmm. uh, because oftentimes they're being supported by it teams who have other priorities um who aren't as is deadly focused on the the particular issues that marketing is facing and, and sometimes in many instances not even really focused on how customers lives are huh okay <laughs> right all right so what are some of the common themes you're getting uh from these from these interviews so um, one thing that's really common, of course, uh, and I think it's mentioned a lot, is, is the, the fact that the different parts of an organization talk well together. Either it's the kind of different product teams or the different channel teams or the different regions or the different uh, kind of functional silos within the organizations. Um, so they're just not communicating together. They don't share mm -hmm. common technologies. They don't share any really common plans. Um, they might be getting some dictation from above about this is the big product that we need to launch, or this is our big strategy for the year, and then they kind of go off on their own to imagine for themselves what they're going to do. Mm. Um, you know, I talked to a, a VP CMO at a major investment bank in Europe, and they were just like, you know, we have just that one of our problems is we have all these teams in rooms all over the world, little mm. to five or six of them. And they're hatching plans and they're making them on their spreadsheets and off they go. They're going to brief agencies, stuff's going to get made. And, you know, we may never hear about it. 
it may get published, it may never get published. If it does get published, who knows through which channels, what customers are touching, what's happening. It's all very, well, painful. <laughs> <laughs> There's an, you raise an interesting point there. I was talking with Robert Rose um, after the ICC conference or during technically um, uh, one night and we were talking about this idea of content at the edges. This is the way that Rob put, Robert puts it. Um, and there's, there's two conflicting forces. There's the idea that you want people who are right as close to the customer as possible in the regions, you know, who are, have their hand, finger on the pulse mm -hmm. to defining content strategies, the editorial plans, uh, direction, um, and therefore the, some of the technical requirements that support that. But then you have this issue of visibility. You have, you have a, conflicting force which says we need to act as one brand we need to know what we are collectively doing we need to be, have all the kind of ducks in one row walking in one direction so how how do we you know how do we square that hole yeah that's it's what i typically talk about is just the centralization versus decentralization paradox mm -hmm. that there are benefits on both sides right mm -hmm. centralization creates efficiencies more brand control, more strategic focus, or decentralization, you know, you're closer to the customer, you know, it's mm -hmm. reasonable for the people who are, you know, marketing to the consumer in Thailand to say, you know, we know the Thai consumer a lot better than you do in Atlanta or in Seattle or in London, you know, let us get on with it. Mm. So, you know, there, there is reason for that. And I think it's, this is that kind of general, you know, high level centralization, decentralization debate has been around long, even before there was really digital, for example. Sure. Um, I think a lot of the, the, the question then becomes about um, just being a little bit more open or finding ways to be open. One of the things um, that I talk about is just kind of, there's, there's a, a famous expression, um, how does it go? I'm gonna get it wrong. Um, <laughs> sunlight, is, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Okay. Um, in that, you know, if bad things are going on, just getting a little light in there suddenly makes a lot of problems go away. Um, so we talk about just making open shared cloud-based environments where plans happen. Um, and suddenly- at least some visibility. Some visibility. People can at mm -hmm. least see what other teams are doing. Um, and that allows, you know, leaders to drill into things if they want to, start querying things. Um, I think, you know, for any of us who have worked in a large enterprise, um, you have had the, probably the experience of stumbling on like interesting shared drives with actually information <laughs> that you wish yeah. you would have had at some point and just making that more often the case. Um, you know, there has to be some controls, but you know, thinking that through, I just don't think in most businesses, the way that their environments have been set up, the way that they work and live and everything has, has been managed or thought through it's like marketing hasn't done its own digital transformation. Mm. They've just gone to market as through digital channels, but they haven't actually within the marketing organization thought about how do we actually work? And some of, so some of the, 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 the basics we find is just like, you know, start using more digital tools, do things in shared open environments, um, you know, use better structure. So there's better search, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these kinds of things are, you know, a good place to start, then there's, you know, governance, um, you know, so if you have that perspective, right, 
of where value is going to be added, where strategies should come from, where it should be defined. I mean, there's just a process, and I, a lot of organizations haven't done this, of just kind of trying to map these things out. I was on a call with a major U.S. product brand um, who markets to kind of professional consumers. And to just say, like, where does, for example, the content strategy, where should it originate as the kind of primary motivation? Um, in many of these organizations, that's product teams who want to push out news about a new product or a product update or some new feature or whatever. Um, and then it goes down through channels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you could start in a lot of organizations just by making a very good descriptive, making it like saying, this is how it actually looks like and just like describing it. Mm -hmm. Then talking about, you know, prescription, what should we, what should it actually look like? And that might look very different. Um, but, you know, for many organizations, just getting transparent about the description of this is how actually content gets conceived and how it cooks down through kind of the different, excuse me, levels, if you will. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the, in the content strategy community, because it was new, um, there was a sort of question of, do we even need more than one content strategist? Mm -hmm. um, which I which I always find a little bit silly because that's like saying we only need one UX designer or one IA or one uh, product manager. Yeah. Um, so the, the what you're kind of talking about the, the, in terms of a governance, it's to cut across the hierarchies. We actually need a hierarchy of content strategists. So we have a, a content strategy at the highest level, but then we mm -hmm. have uh, something that percolates down that can be executable regionally or um, by division or however the organization is, is structured mm -hmm. so that we have a unifying vision, but then can we kind of have local plans and tactics and processes for pulling it off? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's probably as many approaches and good approaches to governance as there are businesses. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly a few principles. I think there is value in some centralization function across an entire enterprise when it comes to content into, you know, um, a lot of businesses will have brand guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they don't brand guidelines that extend into a lot of issues around content all the way into like tones of voice and all this kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. It's um, a lot of kind of logos and colors and space. Right, right. Logo lockouts, um, palettes, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah but not the explicit pieces of like, this is our corporate terminology. This is what we refer to. Uh, talking to a major US automaker, <laughs> you know, what is the back of a pickup truck called? What do you call it? I would call it the bed. Right? And I would probably, some people call it the box. Really? Yeah. And, right. But some, for some people who call it the bed, the box is like the little toolbox accessory you can get in the back, in the bed. There's like a little like oh right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Cross, like a toolbox that's mm -hmm. the box right right <laughs> yeah and it's like well simple thing but you know if everyone across your organization they're kind of auto when you're kind of configuring your truck it says a bed then you go into the dealer and they're like what no a box of oh, this is a box and they're like no no yeah, the box. Yeah, yeah. you know you get in all these kind of conversations yeah and they're they're, you're like supposed that. to be the experts right exactly exactly yeah. and you're kind of putting getting egg on your face. So that piece, it can be really good to have at an enterprise level. Um, really just the whole, like, this is how the organization enterprise organizes for content. So this is mm -hmm. kind of how we think about the content tech and how we think about metadata. 
Uh, maybe at lower levels, there's content programs that are run by people who actually establish the metadata structures that they have. Maybe they have their own kind of metadata structure, but mm -hmm. at least at the high level, they say this is how it should look or how detailed it should be or something along those lines. Right. Um, IBM. So uh, governance level guidelines. Yeah, for, exactly. For those local plans. Yeah, IBM does that. Yeah, well, we have, a, we actually have got, uh, of course, we've got uh, Michael Priestley from IBM, who mm -hmm. does kind of specifically that, um, working to enable IBM to scale. And we just actually, our previous interview was with Marie Girard from Paris, who was feeding into that, uh, into that global strategy. Excellent. So they're always kind of a reference uh, organization for us because their content problems are so big that they mm -hmm. kind of have to tackle them before everybody else does. <laughs> so yeah. they're always good. Um, uh, you mentioned kind of uh, tech silos and tech strategy, and I want to be kind of explicit on that because I still get people today looking for the one system, you know, mm. the one content management system that will do uh, digital asset management, content management, um, approvals and, and audit trails, uh, web publishing for the entire enterprise, um, yet be light and agile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, uh, I, I'm of the opinion that that kind of that whole image was a very dot-com era idea that's kind of collapsed now and that the, the idea of the one system to rule them all is outdated. What are your feelings and have you seen anybody who, who has found, you don't have to name names, but has found one system or is it a matter of learning to federate and standardize across various? Um, well, it's the same centralization, decentralization story, really, except mm -hmm. with content assets, it's about kind of technology stuff, right? If you are, uh, for example, um, pushing out video content to broadcast, mm. some businesses do that on a global level, then you'll really be happy if you have something like AdStream, which automates the creation. Because every like, you know, WKPR in South Korea takes uh -huh. a very specific like frame rate, bit rate, all this kind of current funky video standards for broadcast television. Yeah. And it oh. takes some time to reprogram that video into that format. So it's just a certain measure, a certain graininess, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they automate that for like every country in the world. Right? Hmm. You put in one piece of video and it will churn out like, okay, now we got all the versions for every country in the world. So you can broadcast it in each of these countries and in, into many of the different broadcasters in those countries. Hmm. If you are dealing with global video like distribution, then that's going to be a huge, huge advantage. And you're not, you're not going to get that from like, you know, an open text or a North Plains mm -hmm. or an Adam. They're like, yeah, we do a lot of stuff, but I mean, that level of detail, no. So There's still um, room for specialism. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Where at the same time, you can't argue that, you know, getting the entire organization or as much as you can to have a shared library for mm. version control purposes, for all these, you know, is, is hugely valuable. So there's, yeah, there's that teasing um, and it's going to happen, I think, within every organization and nobody's, there's no nirvana. There's no perfect place. There's, mm -hmm. just, uh, I think, hopefully marketing teams getting a little, getting up to bat a little bit more here um, and at least being aware of some of the issues and, and maybe getting a little bit more, a stronger voice with the, the IT department or having their IT department think a little bit differently or understand how important this is actually for how customers experience their business or their brand. Right, right, right. Um, that's an interesting question in terms of the IT marketing relationship. Um, I've been seeing in, in our consulting uh, uh, support and call centers really kind of meshing as a, as a touch point where marketers really want to know what's going on, what questions are being asked, and then how are offers, upsells, cross grades, et cetera, 
um, being handled and presented because it's mm -hmm. it's a major majorly brand impactful um, to put it clumsily. Uh, so if you call up and speak to a human being, how, how that human being presents the content that they're um, supposed to be relaying really impacts brand. Um, mm -hmm. Then I've also seen in major manufacturers, your IBMs, your, you know, your um, kind of uh, high tech companies, they are looking to integrate documentation, tech comm, help uh, and training with marketing to be mm -hmm. more effective. Have you seen trends in that area? What, which, which groups are playing nice together out in the field? And, do, and does that differ by vertical, by vertical industry? Um, so different like groups uh, that serve customers across like what we would call a customer lifecycle or a customer journey. Mm -hmm. Start to team up. You know, um, I guess in, in B2B land, there's always been the marketing sales discussion. Mm -hmm. That's been, you know, uh, a big discussion again also for decades um, where, you know, the issue for them has always and often been around what is an actual lead look like? What is a, a quality lead and where marketing is always like, we give you all these names and sales like they're always junk. Mm. Um, really understanding what a good lead looks like and having good conversations around that and how do we communicate with those leads? What are they actually interested? How should we be communicating that? I mean, that's, that's been a really long-term thing. I think um, it's some organizations, especially perhaps some of the bigger kind of people who are getting advanced in e-commerce, they're having better conversations between the marketers and the digital teams. So those who mm -hmm. are the e-commerce creation systems and, and creation and, and trying to, to balance the, 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 the brand communications, the storytelling, the, the educational content, those kinds of things with the, the sales types of experiences. No, you know, it wasn't too long ago, literally just a matter of a few years in which all the product teams and digital commerce teams and et cetera were like, I don't want any content really on that product page, like aside from just the product images themselves only maybe and description of the product and let's just make that button big and, and you know, that kind of approach that is, that is, has changed. Um, and there's a lot more understanding. Actually, uh, a lot of UGC of real people using the product is hugely valuable. Um, there is user generated content, user generated content, um, bringing products into some of the more educational experiences so that people can get straight from educational experiences to the product and having those two talk better together. Um, and that's where the classic, you know, um, commerce and content types of conversations happen, like right. CMS versus e-commerce suite. So even just within the two arm, actually, I didn't even think about that when I was asking the question, but I have seen the same thing uh, all the time, which is the, the, the line, which can be either a hard line or quite a fuzzy one, between uh, product information marketing, mm -hmm. uh, product descriptive marketing, and content marketing, editorial marketing, experiential marketing, uh, event marketing, and mm -hmm. so on. So even within marketing, we have multiple silos that we yep. can be integrating before we even talk to other groups. Yes. So it's a little saddening that we are, <laughs> when I was looking for the, any extra, extra team uh, connections, but yeah, yeah, just within marketing, we have that, that issue. Have you seen NB pull it off beyond that really uh, outside of the whole sales marketing group? Uh, outside of sales marketing. So as you yeah. say customer service, um, Dog, I mean, there's, there's uh, training. Yeah. Well, um, I guess marketing still. 
There was a good uh, case study that we've done. Um, one of the, the businesses that does has done customer experience quite well, according to Forrester's own analysis, has been mm -hmm. a, is a bank in Germany, ING DIBA, um, part uh, of the yep. Dutch ING chain. Yep, we and, interviewed them recently. Oh, you did? Okay. Uh, yeah. They've done a lot of interesting work to try to make the customer experience better. That is, it takes a customer experience perspective, but has a lot of then content um, impacts. So mm -hmm. They tried to simplify their product structure. They tried to simplify how they talked about their products. They tried to make it, um, they tried to make their call scripts more conversational. They, mm -hmm. tried to, um, they tried to hire people who are more service oriented and maybe less traditionally banky type of people. Um, and all this, you know, is in line with one of our findings in our customer experience research is that kind of clear and understandable communications are one of the biggest and most unambiguous drivers of good customer experience. Mm -hmm. Or as I like to say, you Keep know, simple. plain words make us happy. Like, don't give me the, you know, the weird legalese description of the terms of my bank account. Like, tell me what it really means. And that it's the, the, the benefits of that are huge. And it's uh, not how organizations have been trained to speak where you walk, you know, the airline's going to say there's a delay and it's like, you know, instead of just saying, sorry, folks, there's a bit of a delay. It's like, you know, we have appeared to encounter a technical malfunction that will result in a 10 minute possible delay. It's like, what? You know, just so, say it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have a, a re, like a, a go-to slide from, from Ralph uh, Hamers, who is the CEO of ING. Um, and he says that our customers said that they need banking, not banks. You differentiate, you can't differentiate through your products. You need to differentiate through your experience, which I think is a, is a really important message, especially for Western world countries who are, who are not going to be able to compete on price or cost anymore. Uh, they, they have to differentiate on something else, both within local markets and on a global stage. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be somebody who has a lower... Uh, costs and can take smaller margins and mm -hmm. your lunch. Um, and that's, you know, as I said, I was talking that product brand, that was one of the challenges that they were seeing is that they are a Western um, product manufacturer uh, that actually has a lot of their stuff made in, in China. And they're having more and more um, products being marketed directly by those Chinese businesses. Mm -hmm. We're doing so in a more and more sophisticated way. And, you know, they can take a smaller margin. It's the same, but it's the same product and they're yeah. marketing it well. And or 95% the same product, you know, and customers yeah. are willing to spend. If you can save 30% and get 95% of the product, it's just a no-brainer. So what have you got left? And that's only going to get worse because we keep talking about China, but there's a lot of the emerging markets like South America, Africa. They have uh, an opportunity there to also emerge as well. And then we have three quarters of the planet um, who is totally outpricing the one quarter that we're, there is currently dominating global commerce. Mm -hmm. So um, um, in terms of where has it worked? Can you give us some, some good little tips of, of you've looked, talked to a bunch of organizations, you've seen some, some dirty secrets. What can we do right now? What do you think? Uh, what do you think you've been seeing that is actually effective at some tackling some of these omni-channel challenges? Yeah, I talked to um, a retailer in Switzerland, Vitra, um, mm -hmm. and they had their kind of CEO. Uh, so the very top of the organization was like, we be more, kind of think more holistically about how we talk about all our products. 
where they appear. We need to be more systematic about how we relate to this. Mm. Um, so they really, um, and this is probably because they had as a re um, who has a bit of control in a way over both their, their, they have the, their stores as well as their online sales, but don't go through a lot of channels could be a little bit more kind of strict. Mm-hmm. Thus, they centralized in a specific content and, and asset management technology and spent a lot of time on the taxonomy and said, we're going to create this centralized hub for talking about our products and our stories and our customers. Mm. And we're going to have kind of a common place for the customer information, the, the product information and all this kind of good stuff. Right. How, how, how big is it, that, that organization? Because I, I find that just what you've just said is already seems like a bridge too far. And, and a lot of our clients where you're just talking about these 50, 100, 120,000 uh, person organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Vitra, how big are they? I mean, they're, they're a major retailer in, like, I think like Switzerland. I think they have, they're in Germany. Um, I honestly don't know how extensive they are. I mean, they're pretty consumer though. I mean, not, not uh, Walmart size or Ikea mm. size perhaps, but, uh, but pretty considerable. All right. Okay. Um, it, you know, it is, as you say, I think it's, you know, the smaller the environment, the easier it is to, to, to organize the larger the environment, the harder it is. Mm-hmm. One group that's, that's, I don't know if you could say that they've realized huge success, but they're at least trying to, and on the path to is, has been Hilton. You know, I've uh, mm. talked with them and read their own descriptions of their efforts to create a, a more omni-channel approach to content where, I mean, for them and the hotels, you know, um, each hotel is essentially its own property. Um, mm-hmm. So there's kind of a whole kind of governance piece and communications piece that has to be worked out. And they're, they're making big progress to say, like, if we want a particular story or idea to appear across all those Hilton websites, that's that's something that we should that would be valuable to us um and we can't do today but we should be able to do Mm. um we should update things in one place and have it roll out on all the different places and they're in the midst they're kind of i think of doing getting through that process of how detailed to go on that and getting all the things connected that should be connected but uh are at least making progress against it um so in both cases it's a matter of um having a central vision and then in the Vitra, Vitra's case, Vitra, you said? Vitra, yes. Vitra, Vitra's case, um, actually getting that, that governance backbone in place. I, I like that you mentioned taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, taxonomy is still a little bit of a dirty word. It scares a lot of people. Um, but I think that in another few years, it's going to be as mundane as saying metadata. Um, right. You know, organizations right now go, do we even need one of those? I don't have a, we have a client right now major bank is, is actually asking the question, do we really need taxonomy management? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I, it's, it's one of those central things that as, what you call things and how you categorize things is so fundamental to making all this work across channels. Um, are you seeing good uptake? Is, are, you, are you seeing the same thing that the taxonomy and um, how we speak and how we label is getting managed better? Maybe a little bit slowly, <laughs> slowly. <laughs> not, not like very rapidly. It's, it's just one of those things where um, it doesn't, it, it looks like a very painful process. It doesn't, the benefits don't look immediate. It's not like 
you're going to go to your board and say, we did this big taxonomy project. And it'd be like, whoa, all right, thumbs up. They're going to be like, right, right, right. You just do, huh? Right. Yes. Um, sounds like you said a dirty word. Um, it's a long game. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's hard to do. You know, the, the things, the benefits, you know, and I think this is some of the things that I'd, I'd mentioned. Um, and when I talk about some of this content intelligence pieces and content structure pieces is, is with the long game and not even long, you start looking at AI and some of the kind of AI decisioning that will go on in terms of delivery mm -hmm. but you need to have some structure to how things are set up to help inform that. Yeah. readable structures so that they can actually do something with it. So there's, there's a big story there. Um, and we're talking about, and we're talking about what that preparation would mean um, and how taxonomy uh, can play into that. Right. Um, it's good you mentioned the, the AI bit there because in relation to taxonomy, and that's actually because we're on, a, um, uh, on our way out of the interview here. Um, I think AI is a fantastic place to, to wrap up because that's like the hot topic for the future. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we had a major bank who was doing AI, uh, chatbots specifically, and they found that taxonomy was the main thing that drove better answers. So mm -hmm. fine, fine tuning the taxonomy made the AI function better. And what I'm scared of and what I wanted to get your take on was uh, I'm concerned about people, especially because of, it's called artificial intelligence, going, great, now I can sh offload all my problems onto this box that's going to think for me. Um, and you're saying that m the importance of machine readable, the importance of taxonomy, can you just elaborate on, on why the AI just can't fix it all for us? So AI um, is builds, a lot of it builds out of data science and data science is essentially um, how uh, systems use information to make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes working off of, for example, decision trees to, to look at a number of different models and try to determine which one is best over time. Mm. And the question then becomes how those decision trees get built or established. Um, and without kind of handholds, if you will, um, kind of, it's like, imagine a, a wall, a sheer wall, trying to climb that wall without some kind of things to grip onto or something to, for this, the, the AI or the system to be able to manipulate in terms mm -hmm. of understanding the content. Um, the AI needs some kind of levers to turn. It needs some, some, some tooling in order to do its decisioning kind of process. And the, the labels, the taxonomy, the, the, the information about what the information is about provides it with some of that tools in order to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And in every organization, and this is going to be a lot of a big piece, um, I think, that we'll see is that um, they, and this is what we're also seeing, is that they're going to want to take the AI and tune it to their particular brand, their business, mm -hmm. how their business works. Um, because taking an out of the box type of AI system to, for example, a new industry, it's not gonna, it's not going to be optimal. It's not going to even make necessarily terribly good decisions because mm -hmm. it doesn't understand, for example, what is the ideal target? What is, what are you optimizing towards? What are you trying to mm -hmm. drive towards? Um, the system, the decisioning system needs to know where it's going, what it's optimizing for. Um, these kinds of things. There's a lot of um, aspects. So the, the taxonomy is an important piece. Um, programming in good targets, um, feeding good and valuable information. Um, mm. 
So the data that goes into the decision-making process that helps the AI learn will be another important piece that we'll see over time. Um, so how are you training the thing? What information goes into it? Um, and, and this is one of the things we've also done some research into is how well is this managed from an ethical perspective? Because uh, mm -hmm. there's a significant risk that um, you start training AIs on real environments, um, they will simply mirror back the discrimination that is inherent in the environment. And we've already seen a few uh, quite nasty examples. Of mm, Microsoft had some trouble, and I think I can't, that was the most famous one that I can remember, but we've had some, some snafus with just letting an AI become a bad person. Yeah, yeah, there was one with Google. Um, well. okay. With, um, yeah, you can Google it. Just Google AI primate. I think you'll find this story. Yeah, primate. Okay, <laughs> that's a pretty recent. It was more recent than the Tay story, but yeah, there's there's been there's a whole uh, litany of kind of examples of of businesses rolling out AI um, in ways that are were harmful, misperceived, or just not good for for the business or, or society at large. Right. Okay, great. I think, well, what I'm getting is that, you know, that an AI is, is an intelligence. So if you hired a super intelligent person, you still would have to explain to them your domain, your brand, your goals, what you know, et cetera. And you can't expect them to just kind of know that. So it's limited intelligence. Oh, absolutely. At some point we'll have kind of what they call AGI, uh, generalized intelligence, uh, meaning it would kind of have the same understandings, maybe to a certain degree as you and I could figure things out in a way and probably do so mm -hmm. quickly, but that's still many, 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 many years down the road. But so right now it's all, yeah, limited mm -hmm. needs to needs training and needs to understand needs to be developed against a particular goal and that kind of stuff. So yeah, those are the limitations we have. Intense care and feeding. Intense care and feeding. That's right. <laughs> okay, great. So thank you so much, uh, Ryan. I've had a, I've got a great time chatting with you. I'm, I'm sure that our viewers find it valuable. Um, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person in Amsterdam uh, for the conference, and uh, I'm sure we'll get some some more stuff out of you uh, in between now and then because you've got so many great things to say. So great. thanks again. I'm looking forward to the event. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you there and seeing um, everyone else and having some great presentations and great conversations. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you everybody for joining. Um, we're gonna wrap up here. This is not gonna be our last interview before the conference, so keep coming back for more. Tell your friends. Um, the call for speakers is open now, so you might be able to rub elbows with Ryan uh, himself uh, at the conference if you wanna submit and tell your story. And registration, um, well, I don't know when you're watching this, but registration will be opening um, June 4th. <laughs> Uh, we just rescheduled the registration, so sorry about that. Uh, so keep your eye out, and um, I'll see you soon. Thank you very much.